This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Morning to everyone. It's such a privilege to open up God's Word, isn't it? And to actually gather to um, learn from it because God has so much truth for us. Let's begin this time by praying and committing ourselves to God. Heavenly Father, engage our minds, our hearts and our hands. That God, your truth uh, may challenge us and may soften our hearts and may cause us to respond rightly to you. Amen. How does God bring the great news of salvation to us? How does God bring the great news of salvation to you and to me? Well, we can try to answer this question by kind of looking back our our history or family history or the church history. Perhaps sometimes we trace as far back as how did the gospel or good news come to Singapore? Or if you're someone who became a Christian not in Singapore, you think from history how far back that God has used certain people to bring the gospel to you. How does God bring the great news of salvation to you and to me? Now, our attempt to answer this question hinges heavily on our uh, privilege to have hindsight. Our answer hinges heavily on us having history to look at. But in the first church in Jerusalem, they did not have such privilege of history yet because they are going to write the history for us. Right at the beginning, they have the Great Commission. Jesus says that you have to go for a global gospel mission. It says, great, but how is that going to unfold? Well, if you left it to their own device, maybe they'll think, let's kind of train up some missionaries, give them some language training, you know, train them in culture. Perhaps you, know, we, you can get a few of the apostles to set up uh, the first mission agency. And at some point, the world may hear the gospel. But they have no idea that God is planning to bring about a big bang event where the gospel will explode from Jerusalem right to the edge of the world. Today as we come to Acts 6, 8 to 8 verse 1, we're actually stepping into close proximity to the explosion of the gospel and how that gospel will eventually reach even us. So as we look at this account of the first martyr, Stephen, it's not just a historical account of what happened. It actually set the stage of how we are to respond because we are still in the midst of the great bang or the big bang of the gospel. We are still in the midst of the power of the gospel that is reaching out to the rest of the world. So I invite you to come with me today as we look at the life of Stephen. Uh, there will be three areas they will look at as, we en- as he encounters uh, opposition and accusation uh, as he turns it around to condemn his accusers. And then finally, how God actually uses his people to bring about the great gospel harvest. So wear your sandals, wear your boots, but keep your Bible open because we'll be coming back to it so often. And let me begin with verse 
8 of chapter 6. Let me read this to us. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, for members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit has given him, has, uh, the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, last week we learned this, that, that, um, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning that he grew up in the Greek culture with the Greek language, and Stephen was, uh, assigned with, uh, chosen with six other men to assist the apostles in the distribution of food to the Hellenistic widows, Jewish widows. So in the words of the apostles back in verse 2, the job of Stephen is to be, um, to wait on tables. That is, he's going to be the, the one who administer the soup kitchen and to distribute food. But by the time we read now, we realize that Stephen is not an ordinary waiter in the soup kitchen or kind of the guy with the distribution of food on wheels, isn't it? Because we've read three times that Stephen is full of the Spirit. Look at it. He is, in verse verse 3, full of spirit and wisdom. In verse 5, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, full of God's grace and power. That's a lot of thing about uh, Stephen in the Bible or anyone. So what we have here is this man who is uh, whose life is clearly committed to Jesus. His life is not... Uh, lived the way he, he just wants it, any or how. His life is directed by the Holy Spirit. He speaks powerfully from scriptures and he has great reverence for God. So this is the man, Stephen, uh, who comes into the picture. And him being full of the Spirit, Stephen does not just think about distribution of food. Uh, in fact, in his spare time, he'll go around and he perform great wonders and signs in his spare time. He actually proclaimed the word of God powerfully. And before long, he catched the attention of those of the synagogue. It didn't take very long for oppositions to appear and for them to argue with Stephen about his teachings. But then the problem comes. The people of the synagogue, they argue with Stephen, but they cannot, they could not win Stephen. As they hear Stephen speaks about Jesus and Moses and the temple, and they are just unable to discredit him, they were really furious, they were pissed off. It's like children or perhaps even adults, they, they, they kick the door or they punch the wall or they swear under their breath, but it's not enough. They want to do something about this Stephen. And so they decide to do what they are really good at. You know what they're good at? They decide to engage false witnesses and use half-truths to accuse Stephen. So they kind of run out some bad characters. He twist, they twisted the words of Stephen. They persuaded people that Stephen had just blasphemed against God and Moses. And they stirred up the whole city such that the whole city was stirred up. And then they placed Stephen on trial. He was made to stand before the Jewish authorities. They are called the Sanhedrin. But as Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin, and the Jews were accusing him 
uh, of blasphemy. Uh, this this is, this is a weird sin because this should never have happened, isn't it? That a, a righteous man shouldn't be accused in, in, in court. This shouldn't be happening. But the reality is, it does happen. And it still happens. That righteous people are being put on trial for accusation of things they have not done. So here, an innocent man falsely accused of an offense he didn't do. He was put on trial by judges who are already biased against him, and he will have to face consequence, whatever the verdict is. You know, we have we can easily read high profiles of um, incident like Asia Bibi from Pakistan. Uh, he, it was a high profile uh, incident where she was um, um, charged with blasphemy. But it doesn't have to be her. If you just look at Open Doors or Barnabas Fund, you get plenty of incidents where Christians were kind of uh, charged with blasphemy or various kind of things. They were put in jail for decades. Some of them had to hide from murderous threats. Stephen, he was the first after the Lord Jesus Christ, but he will not be the last. That is how things will be. So here we have Stephen, a gracious man who cares deeply for the, the widows and poor, who have performed great wonders and signs, who speak scriptures with great authority. But here he is judged falsely as a blasphemer. So as they bring kind of Stephen to the to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, they presented actually two capital uh, crimes. The first is this. They charged him for blasphemy against Moses. Why? Because Stephen spoke against the law. But if you look closely at the passage, he is actually charged because he speaks about Jesus, whom the authority claims is speaking against Moses. That's the first charge, blasphemy against Moses. The second one is worse. They are charging him for blasphemy against God himself. And the charge is that Stephen has spoken against the holy place, the temple. But if you look at the passage carefully, they are actually charging him because he was teaching and speaking about Jesus, whom they claim to have blasphemed against the temple. Let me just look at the passage with us. Look at verse 13 and 14 in your open Bible. And let me read verse 13 and 14 for us. The producers false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. How do we know that? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. It all boils down to this, isn't it? That it is because Stephen was speaking about Jesus and teaching the words of Jesus. And so they use false testimony. They have used false testimony against Jesus in his trial. They're using the same method of false testimony on Stephen in his trial. And when the accusers, they kind of falsely place the charges on, on Stephen, the Sanhedrin comes in. Uh, just a point to note, the Sanhedrin were involved with the murder of Jesus as well in the gospel. Here you have the Sanhedrin, they turn to Stephen for his reaction. Perhaps, perhaps Stephen will kind of retract his words and apologize or kind of just tone down a little bit. But instead, this is what they saw. Look at verse 15. 
all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The calmness of Stephen was a stark contrast on the anger of his accusers. The light upon Stephen was a stark contrast to the darkness in their hearts. You know, the one they accused to be blaspheming against Moses, as they look at him, he actually looks very much like Moses. Why do we say that? Because back in Exodus 34, this is what we are told, Moses, when he has received the law, the covenant of God, the tabernacles, uh, the tablets, when he comes down, his face was glowing with heavenly glow. And here they are, this Moses-like Stephen that they are accusing. The, the, the Sanhedrins, they are facing someone who is not a lawbreaker. They are facing someone who is able to very clearly and carefully explain scriptures with God's power and that of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment as we kind of been hearing and journeying with Stephen to note that God's enemy often will not engage in truth. Their way to engage Christians is not with truth. They will prefer to pick up half-truths and then they will send you an accusation of various kinds. We look at this and we see this often, that those against Jesus, they, they may create a testimony that falsely accuse Christians of blasphemy, of intolerance, or of going against the law. They'll totally shut off what Christians actually do believe, that we have been taught by our Lord Jesus Christ to share our word, His word and our lives. Christians are taught by Jesus to love the poor and the orphans and the widows. Christians are taught to be peaceable people who praise for their leaders of the country. But that's not what um, the accusers will want to engage with. They want to engage with part truths. So like Stephen, we, we ourselves, we live in this kind of upside-down world where we regularly hear of Christians who will be murdered just because they believe. They are kind of armless martyrs. You know, Open Doors in uh, 2015, they, they wrote this, that in that year alone, 7,000 Christians were murdered or were killed just because they say, I'm a Christian. 7,000 in a year. You know, as we listen to news like that, or as we read Stephen's account, in one hand, we kind of should grieve about it, isn't it? Because that shouldn't have happened. That righteous man shouldn't be accused. But on another hand, we should not be surprised. Because that's how it has always been. That those who speak of Jesus will be accused. And Stephen's account sets the example of what the rest of Christians from him onwards should be prepared, including us. Now let's come back to Stephen. How will Stephen actually respond to his accusers? Stephen who is full of faith, grace, power, wisdom of the Holy Spirit, how will he respond to the Sanhedrin? This is how he'll do it. He'll do it the way that Jesus does it. He will not defend himself. He'll speak mightily and then suddenly he will turn the table around and the accusers ends up being the accused. So look at this, like Jesus, Stephen, is not planning to leave Jerusalem. 
because he knows that what he's about to say will put him to death. But he's going to say it anyway. So listen. Listen to how Stephen develops his case. He kind of begins this way if you look at uh, his, his, his sermon or his speech. He begins by kind of at least setting a common ground. He calls them uh, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he speaks beginning on their common history of Abraham. In fact, this, this whole chunk, chapter 7, is a huge uh, history. You kind of can break it down into three, three groups. One is the era before Moses. One is the era during Moses' time. And one is the era of the temple. Okay, I'm just putting them in uh, three big um, categories uh, to help us a little bit. So while they're accusing Stephen for blasphemy against God because of the temple, Stephen points out that sin against God is never confined merely to the temple. Sin against God is never confined merely to the temple. The reason is because God is everywhere. It is our relationships with God that reveals if we are obeying God or if we are sinning against Him. So take a look at Stephen's Old Testament account and notice, if you look carefully, that Stephen emphasized a lot of place, a lot of names or places, because these are the places where God actually meets with God's people. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me as we kind of journey very briefly. <clears throat> 3 and 4, Abraham, he met and followed God from Mesopotamia, then the land of the Chaldeans, and then up to Haran, and then uh, finally to Canaan, the land where they now live. If you look at verse 9, the patriarchs, they kind of sold their own brother Joseph to Egypt out of jealousy, but Guess what? When Joseph arrived in Egypt, God met Joseph in Egypt and God gave Joseph wisdom that's unparalleled in all of Egypt, such that even Pharaoh regards Joseph as his father. In the end, what happens? Jacob and the patriarchs in the promised land, famine came and they have to move to Egypt because that's how God wants it to be. And then Stephen goes on to speak about Moses, or how much respect Stephen has for Moses. He says, no, Moses, he's a special child, he's destined for greatness. Yet, this time, God did not meet Moses in Egypt. God meets Moses in a desert near to Mount Sinai. As Moses was there, the burning bush appeared, and God says, this is the holy ground. And this is where you and me meet. As we move on quickly, the history... God gives the symbol of the tabernacle where the people of God can be with God so that with the tabernacle, they journey into the promised land. And by the time they reach the promised land, King David, the greatest king, met God there before the temple was even built. So there you have, at, the, at, at Jerusalem, David says, God, I, I want to build you a house. And God says, you can. You can collect the materials, but it's my terms. It will be your descendant who will build my house. And so there we have Stephen. He took the Sanhedrin and his accusers on a familiar tour of the scriptures to point out that, you know what? God is not confined in the temple. And that's with that, Stephen points them to verse 48. Look at verse 48 with me. This is where Stephen says, 
However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. No, during their journey on their common history, Stephen makes this point clear. God is not confined to the temple. God is not confined to the temple. That's why God was with Abraham, where? Mesopotamia, Haran, Canaan. God was with Joseph in Egypt. God was with Moses in Mount Sinai. God was with David in Jerusalem without the temple. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. So the temple cannot confine God. Yet the religious leaders, they are accusing Jesus. They have accused Jesus and they are accusing Stephen of blasphemy against God because of the temple. And listen to this carefully. This is where Stephen points out a horrendous truth. Stephen points out that, you know what? Your God is not the Most High. Your God is the temple that Herod has built. Let me say that again. Stephen is driving a point here. He's looking at his accusers to tell them, your God is not the God of Most High. Your God is the temple. You may say, Andrew, wait a minute. Where do you actually see that being pointed out? Is that really what Stephen is trying to say? I invite you to look with me carefully to 40, 48 to 50. Because that is what Stephen will drive right into his message. I'm going to read to you verse 48 to 50 as you are looking at it with me. And then I want to show you where did this passage comes from and what it was actually meant to mean. So let me read to you Acts 7, 48 to 50, and then I'll show you where it comes from. Acts 7, 48 to 50, it says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? This is actually a direct quote by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. But I want to read to you Isaiah 66, verse 1 to 4, because after saying this, God is going to unravel two kinds of people who claims to be His, but one is not. Let me read to you. It's almost verbatim in the first two verses, but let me read this to you. Isaiah 66, verse 1 verse 4. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you built for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. And then the Lord continues revealing that there are really two groups of people. One worships God for who he is, the other is not. Look at the first one. He continues the verse. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. And then God points to a second group who acts religious in the temple, but they are detestable to God. Verse 3 carries on. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways. They delight in their abomination. We are meant to follow Stephen as he 
quotes Isaiah in his sermon to realize this. God looks down from heaven to earth. He sees these two groups. One of them uh, is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. They may not even be in the temple. Doesn't that sound like Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David? Humble, contrite in spirit and tremble at God's word. But God sees a second group. They merely look like God's people, but they are really not. They choose to live life their way. They break faith with God and they live for their own idolatry. These people, they have elaborate temple worship and sacrifice. But as God looks at their sacrifices, this is the murdering of a person, the breaking of a dog's neck, the spilling of pig's blood. Because they worship not me. They worship themselves. And God detests this temple worshippers. So what is Stephen doing? Stephen is turning around the whole table and says, I am not the one blaspheming against God. You are. And to draw this point further, he speaks about the blasphemers of Moses And the truth is this, those who blaspheme against Moses have been there all through the generations. As we read the the sprinkles of those with contrite, humble spirit who who fears God, there's the second group who is there all along. Let me read to you first uh, from from this passage. I put it out on the slide, but you can follow from your own Bible. Stephen points out the second group. Verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Verse 27, the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? Now, do you remember how we first started in our, in today's passage? We read that Stephen was a man full of wonders and signs. Let me turn to you. Let me invite you to turn and look at verse 36 to 37 when Stephen speaks about Moses. He, Moses, led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. But guess how the people respond to Moses? Look at verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, rejected him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. The Jews from the synagogue and Stephen, they both claim to uphold the words of Moses. But who really are the ones that are honoring Moses? And who really are the ones that are blaspheming Moses? And this is where Stephen brings the charge back at his accusers and the Sanhedrins who were directly involved in the murder of Jesus back in Luke's account. Listen to how Stephen's dramatic condemnation of his accusers unfold. Look at verse 51 as I read this to us. Then Stephen said this, You stiff-necked people, Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predict the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him 
You will receive the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. How does Stephen begin his um, speech? He begins addressing them as brothers and fathers. Why? Because they shared their same history. But that's it. They do not say they do not serve the same God. And that's when he turns around, when he comes to God, he says, You stiff necked people, hearts and ears that are uncircumcised. You know what? You are descendants of those who have always blasphemed God and blasphemed Moses. Like the ancestors who murdered God's prophet in history, these accusers and the Sanhedrins, they also murdered Jesus. And, and, and Stephen's knows, and you are going to murder me. Like the ancestors who blaspheme, uh, who received the law and yet disobeyed Moses. Stephen's accusers and the Sanhedrins, you know what? They have heard the teachings of Jesus and Stephen. They have witnessed the signs and wonders of Jesus and Stephen. They have engaged with Stephen and with Jesus and they have found that they can't uh, refute them because they speak the truth. But what did they do? As their truth becomes clearer and clearer, their hearts become harder and harder and harder. And when they could no longer overcome the wisdom and the words of Jesus, they decide to just murder him. And here, when they realize they can no longer overcome the words of Stephen, they will do the same. They will do the very things that Moses told his people, you must never do. And they did it. They created false testimonies and they murder the innocents. Dear friends, what is the greatest sin that the religious accusers could commit? What's the greatest sin that they could commit? If you look at today's passage, the greatest sin they could commit is to resist the Holy Spirit. And by resisting the Holy Spirit, they eventually end up betraying and betraying God and commit treason against God and ultimately murder the righteous one of God. But now I just want to stop here and ask, what is the greatest sin that you and I can commit? What is the greatest sin that you and I can commit? I think it's the same, isn't it? The greatest sin that you and I can commit is to resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus puts it differently, or in different words, in Mark 3, Jesus says the worst sin a person can commit is to blaspheme against the Spirit. But the question now you may ask is, Andrew, what does resisting the Holy Spirit look like? I think this is what Stephen has been drawing out in this whole event. To put it in parallel with his accusers, this is what resisting the Holy Spirit looks like. The messenger of God, listen to this, the messenger of God, he will reveal clearly what is sin and treason against God looks like. And the consequence is judgment. And the messenger continues, but God offers forgiveness 
if you repent and come to Jesus. That is the message of the messenger and the Holy Spirit taking the truth, impressed upon the hearts of people and say, this is what is truth. But those who resist the Holy Spirit, they will listen to it, they will turn away. They will listen to it, and they will not only reject the messenger, they will reject the message, and they will want to murder the Savior. That is what it means to resist the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit confronts the listeners with truth, the listeners respond in rejection and greater hardening of the heart. Because one day, time will run out. One day, all the resistance will end, leaving only the judgment of God. Let me put it this way to help us understand. When a person sins out of ignorance, truth will set him or her free. When a person sins out of weakness and temptation, the Bible tells us we have one who mediates for us at the right hand of God, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. But how about the one who sins by resisting the Holy Spirit? Who is there for him or her when the time comes for judgment? There's no one. There's this... um. Um, Hollywood actress, an Oscar-winning actress. Her name shall not be mentioned. She has 680 movies in a bell. She was an Oscar winner. At her deathbed, um, perhaps from heart attack, she reprimanded her housekeeper, who was kind of trying to pray for her. Uh, and, and she looks at her housekeeper and she reprimanded her, saying this, Don't you dare ask God to help me. This was her last words. Don't you dare ask God to help me. It's frightening, isn't it? Because that last breath ran out. And so did many others who resist the Holy Spirit until the day there's nothing left. May we never choose to resist the Holy Spirit when He reveals God's truth and offers us salvation and repentance. Now finally, we come to the account where the blood of the first martyr will be spilled. So look at verse 54, because when his blood spills, the gospel seed is planted, the explosion of the gospel will go forth. Look at verse 54 with me. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. You know, these Sanhedrins, they could not refute Stephen, they become furious. No, they would have tried to legally punish Stephen. Except that the next time Stephen spoke again, they kind of just snap. And Stephen cries out, I see heaven open, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They could not bear to hear the mention of Jesus again. So they, they cover their ears, they yell at the top of their voice so they can't hear Stephen. They drag him out of the city and they stone him. This is the reality, isn't it? It's never neutral when it comes to Jesus. Those who follow Jesus, they, they will speak about Him even if they face death. And those who do not want truth and resist Jesus, they, 
they will want to silence the message, the messenger, and all that comes with it. So if you can imagine the scene as the witnesses and the angry men, they kind of took off their coats and uh, to stone Stephen, they have actually also taken off their false religiosity and piety. As they lifted up those big rocks, it takes a while to stone a person to death. As they take out the big rocks uh, to stone Jesus, they have also lifted up the illegal act of murder. No, they would have done what they have done with Jesus. They would have gone to Pilate and said, No, this man deserves death, but we can't kill him. And they try to come up, but not Stephen. They, they have done it to Jesus. They say, Enough. We'll just do it. And as they lift the stone and they killed Stephen with it, they have just fulfilled what Stephen accused them of. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. No, as you, as you look at this account, it's hard to miss the similarities between Jesus' death and, and Stephen's death, isn't it? Stephen, a man who was, was mighty in wonders and signs, who spoke heavenly wisdom, he was gracious, but yet he was falsely accused. How he boldly refuted hypocrites and pointed out their sin. Now, as Stephen was hurled there mercilessly, being stoned to death and yelled at, he spoke his last words. And guess what? It sounds just like his own Lord. Let me just read to you what Stephen says in verse 59. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he said this, he fell asleep. No, I believe when, when, when Luke wrote this, he's not just writing for us to kind of see a, a great martyr, a great hero. He's writing to show us what a true follower of Jesus looks like. As Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees the most beautiful sight. He didn't see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Look at it, what did he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, waiting to receive his child, the child of God, waiting to receive the first martyr. Now, who was the first man who entered heaven? Anyone remembers? The first man who entered heaven was the criminal on the cross, isn't it? Next to Jesus. When he enters heaven through Jesus, Jesus declared to the world, there's no sin that is so evil that God and Jesus cannot forgive if he repents. That was the first declaration. Who's the second man that enters heaven? Stephen, isn't it? As Jesus enters uh, as Stephen enters heaven, it's a declaration to us what a true follower of Jesus looks like. Look at what, Jesus, what Stephen prayed. As Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Isn't this the words that all Christians after Stephen will hold on to as we face death? I hope you do, if you are a Christian that this will be the words that you hold on. That as Stephen faced death, he says, Lord, I'm coming, receive me. And that is the confidence of all Christians. And the second last words that Stephen says as he fell on the ground, he cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So too will the hearts of Christians be towards the world. That as we share the gospel to the world, the world may hate us, 
hurt us and cause us to suffer. But our role is not to judge them. We leave the last judgment to Jesus. But instead, Christians, we turn around and pray, God, that you forgive the sin of their hurt against me. But even more so that they may come to see Jesus and be saved. This is the words of Stephen, but these are the words that carries on to every single Christian. Now, dear friends, how does God bring the great news of salvation to us? How does God bring the great news of salvation to you and to me? Now, He uses those who will follow the footsteps of Jesus. In fact, verse chapter 8, verse 1 tells us this. When Stephen dies, that very day marks the great persecution of all Christians in Jerusalem. So severe was the persecution that very day, Christians just exploded out towards Judea and Samaria. Only the apostles stayed on in Jerusalem. It is the death of Stephen, the first martyr, that causes the great big bang of Christianity out to the world. And it reaches us because as death of Stephen exploded Christianity, there were more and more Stephens who exploded um, for the gospel. And it just exploded and exploded and it reaches us 2,000 years later. Who would have expected salvation to go forth this way? Only God knows. But there's just one last thing. As the blood of Stephen soaks the dry ground where the big rocks are. One more seed will come forth. There was this young man. He was not yet qualified to stone Stephen. Uh, he, he's not kind of a waiter on the table for the apostles. He was the clothes hanger or the clothes picker of the Sanhedrin. His job is to kind of wash the clothes uh, for, for the people who stoned Jesus. And, and read 58. Let me read 58 for us. As the witnesses rushed to stone Stephen, they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know what? This young man Saul, he, he saw what happened to Stephen. He, he heard what Stephen said. And guess what? He approved what Stephen uh, was facing. But he doesn't realize that very soon, Jesus will meet him. Because Jesus heard the prayer of Stephen. Lord, do not take account of their sin. And Jesus will appear to this, this soul and say, I am going to forgive your sins. And I'm going to ask you to bring the gospel out to the rest of the world. And Saul, better known as the Apostle Paul, was the greatest apostle that a large part of our New Testament comes from this man who is the clothes hanger for the Sanhedrin. If he would have stayed there, there he would have joined the Sanhedrin in time to come. But he didn't. And he became the future Stephen. Can you see the, the irony here as the, the, the accusers, the Sanhedrin, they, they try to silence the message. They kind of dump the clothes at Saul and they go and kill Stephen thinking that killing the messenger uh, will silence the message. They have just walked past the person who is going to take over Stephen. They have just placed their cloaks on his feet because this man saw will bring forth the gospel and build many, many churches for the Gentiles. 
But guess what? Who is Apostle Paul's first Old Testament lecturer? Who is Apostle Paul's first model of martyrdom? Who is Apostle Paul's teacher who says, you will preach to your dying breath? That one, that man with that one chapter in Acts, the one that God has used his blood to bring the gospel to us. As I kind of wrap up this place to close, I just want to bring out the three implications that we have kind of actually looked at, but I just want to summarize it for us. The first implication is this. Whether you are Christian or you are not Christian, Stephen's point is very clear here that you do not find God by entering into a building. You do not find God by entering the building. You find God by entering into a relationship with His Son. The second implication is this. With our Christian, let's just put it out blatantly, right? That sharing gospel or sharing about Jesus is risky business. On a good day, we'll kind of be rejected by our friends. On a bad day, you lose your life. But, but Stephen's point is this, that what is being sown is never in vain. Because Jesus will multiply those that he has sown on the soil. And all of us remembers the words of Stephen because that is the words that we'll say in our deathbed and those are the words we say to the world who kills us. The last point I just want to bring out the implication is if you're someone who's been thinking about Christianity, you've been hearing it, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make the truth clear to you. But my prayer is also that He will soften your hearts so that you will not hear truth and resist it for how horrible and unimaginable it will be if the truth is revealed in our hearts and the clearer it is, the harder our hearts get because there will be nothing else left except judgment. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful to you for Stephen, that he, as he spilled his blood on the soil, showed us what it means to follow Jesus. And so it has been for all these two millenniums that Stephen-like people have spread the gospel by spilling their blood. We pray, God, that we have seen them in our history. We pray that those ahead of us will see that in our times as well. We pray for those of us who are contending about the gospel and the good news of Jesus. We pray your Holy Spirit speaks to us and soften our hearts and strengthen our hands that we can respond rightly to you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, Visit us online at busypc.sg.